Welcome to Soul Conversations, a podcast where two Korean adoptees unpack what it means to be Asian and adopted by discussing culture, race, history, and sharing adoptee stories. I'm Shanae, and this week I'm hosting solo, but I am also totally fangirling because our guest is none other than Korean-American, OG YouTuber, beauty influencer, mother, and makeup guru extraordinaire, Jen Che, who you might know better as the woman behind From Head to Toe. Jen, thank you so much for being on the pod this week. I've been watching your makeup tutorials and following along with you since your very first video back in 2008. I remember I was like sitting in my dorm room as a college freshman and was so excited to finally have someone to teach me how to do eyeliner on my monolidded eyes. And you were just such a godsend for me and so many other Asian adoptees who really struggled for so long without any racial mirrors to teach us how to do our makeup. So I'm super honored to be able to sit down and talk with you today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm I'm so honored that you would want to talk to me. And, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of similar feelings, especially regarding beauty around that time. Definitely. Now, you're not an adoptee, but you are second-generation Korean-American, and you grew up in Kansas. So what was that experience like for you? Um, you know, for me, I grew up in a majority white community in Kansas, very much the Bible Belt Midwest situation. I basically didn't have any what you would call like a an Asian community around me. Um, my parents would go to a Korean church. So I grew up in a Korean church, and that was pretty much my exposure to Korean culture outside of my own home. But otherwise, at school, I was really generally Asian gen. There, there really weren't any other Asians in class with me. There would maybe be like one Middle Eastern kid or like one immigrant person or one Black kid in each class. <laughs> so um, yeah, just not a lot of diversity. Do you have siblings or were you an only child? I have an older sister. She was not particularly girly and she didn't wear makeup. Um, I think I actually kind of got her way more into makeup, so she loves it now. But um, my mom also, she would focus a lot on skincare, but she didn't really do much in terms of eye makeup. So a lot of discovering beauty was very much on my own. Mm-hmm. Was it something that you naturally gravitated towards, like as as a teenager? What really kind of hooked you on makeup to begin with? You know, it was actually the opposite. I didn't want people to judge me based on you know how I looked. So for the longest time, I actually really rejected makeup. Um, and partially that was because I really struggled with having acne ever since I was maybe 11 years old. And went through so many ups and downs with my skin that I just (laughs) wanted to be like, well, if you're going to be friends with me, if you're going to like me, you're going to like me with my bare face (laughs) or (laughs) not like me at all. And that's fine with me. Um, But then when I was in college and really started to go for internships, that's when I really was like, you know what? I felt like people judging me for not wearing makeup it was just as bad as me judging other people for wearing makeup. And so I really had to do a little bit of soul searching and figure out what it was that actually bothered me about this whole assumption about image and beauty 
And I came to the conclusion that it only matters if you're judging beauty based on the outward context of societal standards of beauty. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to feel beautiful and confident in yourself. And I also have had a background in art and design. um, And so I just naturally always loved the idea of painting and drawing and making things aesthetically beautiful. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to let go of my own assumptions about beauty and just have fun with it and just see what makes me feel confident and good. And when I started sort of experimenting with that, just based on what I knew from art, light, shadow, that sort of thing, um, I just made up my own techniques. And I was like, well, I think that this would be helpful for other people in my same situation too. So that's what I did in terms of trying to get into, you know, posting about it. Cause I just wished I knew that information when I was younger and I had no one to teach me. So that's kind of where it all started. It was really just a very innocent desire to share information. Yeah. And I mean, you were, when you started, YouTube was like, it was like baby YouTube and baby Jen, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, everything was just starting. I just watched an old clip of a video recently. I don't know how it popped up, but I was like, oh my gosh, Ben, I was telling my husband, like, oh my gosh, I sounded like a chipmunk. My voice has <laughs> changed so much since then. I was such a baby. But you know, I kind of was, you know? I was really young and it was all really fresh and, and very exciting. Well, and one of the things that I love to, not that I go back and watch them, like I don't want that to sound weird. Um, (laughs) But one of the things that I love about your channel is you haven't taken those videos down. And I love that you have this archive of everything. So we really, I mean, I feel like from being 17 or 18 years old up through now, you know, I'm 32 and going to be a mom and all of that. Like, I feel like I have grown up with you through marriage and houses and YouTube growing pains and, you know, your two kids. And it's just, it's such a cool journey to see. Yeah. I, I actually think that's one of the really beautiful things about the internet is being able to have that archive and look back and see the history of my experiences in life, like more than, more than just a career or, a YouTube channel, it really captured a lot of my major life moments. And I think that that's just really special, you know, who can say that they have that kind of history documented? Yeah, definitely. So you semi recently launched your own line in collaboration with Pixie Beauty, um, which I love. I use all of those products. They are in my makeup bag for the hospital because they're very, I feel like mom and labor friendly. Um, (laughs) But that being said, what are your thoughts and feelings regarding current Asian representation in all of the different facets of the beauty industry? I will say compared to, you know, 10, 12 years ago, things have gotten better in terms of being able to find a wide range of skin tones when it comes to foundations and concealers. I think that there has been a push in having more representation in terms of the actual products. 
But for Asians specifically, I still feel like there is, you know, a pretty wide margin of lack of representation. Um, The good thing now is that beauty is so profitable and it's such a huge market that there are a lot of smaller companies popping up that are focusing more on the Asian marketplace. But I also feel like in terms of skincare, you know, that there was that huge expansion of K-beauty that came over to the United States. And I, I think that that did help with exposure. But I feel like, again, that's more in terms of products versus actual marketing materials. You know, you just don't see a lot of Asian models being used. And I also feel like slightly disappointed sometimes when when there are things shown with Asian models, because sometimes when there's like a makeup demonstration, I'm like, oh, I, I don't feel like that would be the way an actual Asian person would want the makeup to look on themselves. You know, mm. like a lot of times it's more of like a, a piece of art <laughs> or like high right. fashion yeah. <laughs> versus appealing to how somebody would actually wear their makeup. And I think that that comes with a lack of understanding of how makeup is applied. You know, it's it just, it's not taught the way that I think it should be personally. I mean, I'm just, you know, biased, of course, being monolithic myself, but I ran into that a lot when I was younger. If I would go with my white friends to go to get our makeup done at a makeup counter, everybody else would look beautiful. And I felt like I would look like a witch. Yes, <laughs> like I got punched yes. in the eyes. Yes, the black eye experience. Yeah. I've had so many of those. <laughs> yeah, and they would just say, oh my gosh, you have so much lid space to work with. It's so awesome. But then they just would put eyeshadow all the way up to the eyebrows and it just looks horrible. It doesn't retain the natural contours of the eye and it just looked kind of scary. So I know. You know. I feel like I had this aversion to the phrase smoky eye. I feel like it was like a trigger for me <laughs> because anytime someone said, Oh, I'm gonna do a smoky eye, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna look like I came out of a boxing ring. Like, oh. I I know that experience very well. Yeah. <laughs> In regards to K Beauty, I'm curious, like, what are your feelings on K Beauty? Because it was, it was such a huge phenomenon and it still is. Um, I still see, you know, all of the posts about 10 step Korean skincare routines. I tried it for a month and everything. But what are your feelings on it being used, A, sort of as a fad, and B, especially kind of, and we'll talk about this later, but in in these waves of the rise in anti-Asian hate, you know, that that there are people who really fetishize certain parts of Korean culture, like K-pop or K-beauty or K-drama, but then when it comes to actual real systemic issues that matter, um, they maybe are not so inclined to speak up or to be an ally. What are your thoughts on that? I think in general, globally, the rise of K-beauty, I see it as a really positive thing because a lot of brand associations with different types of people. I see it as a a positive correlation, you know, that people see this science and technology coming out of Korea and they think of Korea in a a favorable, 
high technology kind of way. And I also think that the products are really great. And the thing about K-Beauty is you can get a lot of really great products at a reasonable price, which I think in the past, a lot of the ways that certain skincare products were marketed in the US was either super high-end, expensive, very perfumed from these heritage brands just for you know spending a lot of money on the brand Or it was this bargain bin, drugstore, not as great quality kind of feeling. And I honestly feel like K-Beauty lands somewhere in the middle. It makes people feel good about what they're buying, but it's also affordable enough for a lot of people to really experience that joy of skincare. Mm -hmm. I also have to say that, of course, we have to be considerate of the current wave of anti-Asian hate, but I don't necessarily see K-Beauty as really capitulating any of that hatred or fetishization. Mm -hmm. I can't necessarily say the same about K-dramas because again, that's like Hollywood. That's like watching a Hollywood film and expecting romance to be like what you see on the streets. Like obviously it's very different. Um, But in terms of the actual beauty products themselves, I think overall, it's a really positive thing. And I, I'm very excited about Korean beauty products and having more Korean companies come to the forefront and be really respected on a global scale, because it's good stuff. And it's also fulfilling a market need that I really feel like was missing in the US in the past. Like, I'm so thankful for the push in newer technologies coming out of Korea. I will say not everything works for my skin. And I'm very (laughs) particular about what I actually use because my skincare routine is, it's very simple and it's very strict. (laughs) Yeah. But but I've seen a lot of great products come out and I'm very happy about it. Mm -hmm. And with it, I feel like too, going back to kind of what you had said earlier, more of that authentic representation I feel like, you know, with the K-Beauty products, you're getting more authentic Asian or Korean, you know, faces and ads and things like that, that are more, uh, their makeup is more naturally done. And, you know, it's not the electric orange avant-garde eyeshadow that's being promoted, but it's just, it's either women with, with no makeup on their faces to promote, you know, clean, beautiful skin and kind of the bare face look, or it's just very subtly done. So I feel like that's definitely been nice. I feel like the most authentic representations I've seen have come from a lot of the K-beauty marketing. You know, I'm very thankful, actually, in a way that quarantine has forced a lot of people to reassess how they look at themselves and how they look at their beauty routine, how much makeup they're wearing. I've always been an advocate of natural beauty. And I, even my older videos where people were saying that about me, I'm like, wow, I feel like I was still wearing so much more makeup then than I am now. But at the time, it was so much less and so much pared back from the very popular Kim Kardashian high contouring, baking, super thick makeup that was popular at the time. That's just never been my jam. (laughs) It's never Mm -hmm. been what I felt like really highlighted somebody's inner natural beauty. I don't want to say like inner beauty, obviously it's on the surface of your skin, but there are ways to put makeup on your face that will bring out your natural features versus try to really manipulate it to be vastly different than it is. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, they approach makeup 
in a way of trying to hide what they don't like and really mask what they're afraid of and what they're insecure about. But for me, I guess I see it more as a way of boosting how I feel about myself and bringing out the features that I love the most. And whenever I do makeup on somebody else in that manner, I feel like that's where they feel the most happy and excited when they see how they look. Right. And kind of along that same vein, recently in one of your videos, you had mentioned for your New Year's resolutions, I think, that you were going to wear false eyelashes less when you were filming. And it was something that I think just struck me when I watched it because I personally have been, I would say I am like a false eyelashes try but fail person. (laughs) I've tried them so many times. (laughs) For me, they just, I've never been able to get them to work the way I want, or I've had them done. I had them done before my wedding and it was a little bit of a disaster because I had an allergic reaction to the glue after like four applications. But I'm curious because you are such an advocate for that natural beauty and emphasizing features. A, did you ever have any features or do you have any of your features that you're more insecure about, particularly because you're Asian or What's been your evolution in terms of embracing your Asian features and that confidence? You know, I want to say I, again, like what I said before about not having worn makeup until pretty late. I was maybe, I don't know, I want to say like 20 or 21 before I even started to wear makeup regularly. I never really had a hatred for my Asian features. I think it was more, I I would say the the parts obviously that I've been self-conscious about in the past definitely have to do with a lot of feedback that I've received from the Asian community. My whole life as a Korean American, I was always taught that double eyelids are the standard of beauty. You know, that's like what people want to have. A lot of people get surgeries to get Uh, that crease in their eyes, which, you know, lifts up your lashes, and really opens up the eyes a little bit. And, um, you know, I've had a lot of family members get that surgery done, too. It's really actually not, I would say, culturally a big deal to get a double eyelid surgery. Um, But I was actually offered getting the surgery when I was, I want to say in junior high, and I was like, no, I don't think I really need it. And so I didn't. And then by the time I got to college, there were a lot of times where I was like, oh, I should have done it back then. (laughs) You know, just because I was like so frustrated with makeup. It was before I was really, you know, trying to wear much makeup. And it was just annoying when I would try to put on a mascara and my lashes would just fall down. Or I would put on eyeliner and it would just smudge down my eyes. It was a very unhappy experience trying to experiment with makeup and having things just never ever go the way the magazines would tell me it should. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was, you know, a difficult process of being like, okay, well, now I'm a little bit older and I'm not just in junior high where I can be confident doing nothing, basically. (laughs) I, I felt that pressure of being like, well, clearly you're in a situation where you're not the standard of beauty and the way that your eyes are shaped are making it, it's making it difficult to do a lot of 
make up things that you want and having it stay on the way you want and having your lashes lifted up like you want. And so I think that there were several years where I went back and forth and really considered like, should I, should I get my eyes done? Should I not? You know, because um, I, I have to say, if you go to Korea, it's like such a casual procedure. And I am not for or against surgery in any way. You know, I'm really quite open minded to whatever people want to do to their own bodies. But every time I was presented with it, I just felt like that wasn't the choice I wanted to make at the time. And I think I still have a lot of times where I go back and forth and I think to myself like, hmm, well, I feel like I'm, I'm probably still going to get something done at some point in my life, you know, like my grandma told my mom, make sure you get your eyes done when you're around 40, because when you get it done, when you're in your 60s, the recovery is much, much harder. And you don't want to wait that long where your eyelids are drooping in front of your eyes. So you have vision problems. Um, And so my mom, you know, she'll still bring up that story and say that to me. And I was like, well, if you want to get your eyes done, Oma, you can. And she's like, no. (laughs) She's like, no, I wouldn't do that. But I think in a way, I I kind of got that natural tendency from my mom too, where, you know, I'm not against surgeries, but I think until I feel like I quote unquote need it, Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm going to yet, if that makes sense. So I don't hate my eyes, but I have seen, you know, within my family and other members, uh, elders within the (laughs) Korean or Asian community, it does cause some vision problems in the future sometimes. So that's definitely something to consider as I age. But again, it's like partially, I think that also becomes a medical issue, you know? Um, Right. Otherwise, you know, I just have like the typical frustrations with monolithic uh, monolithic experiences with makeup, but then also like my lashes on the inner corners will poke my eyes and, and scratch them and things like that. But I just kind of, you know, pluck them. But, but if I were to get surgery in the future, I would also want to be open-minded enough to, I guess, allow myself the grace to make that decision at the time, if that makes sense. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I had, and it's interesting too, to hear your perspective because you, I think, you know, more so than someone like me who grew up with that absence of Korean culture and especially Korean elder culture, you have beauty standards coming from both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like in the exclusively non-Asian community of, you know, like the area I grew up in, I certainly never saw Asians in magazines. Because that's like what we grew up with, right? We would like get our Cosmo or Vogue magazine from the grocery store. And then it would give you tips on like how to contour your eyeshadow or something. And we never had any representation. There was nobody that looked like us. Yeah. I'm sure coming from the adoptee perspective, there is no example of what's quote unquote normal or culturally typical when it comes to something like double eyelid surgery. Like, I don't even know if you would have been exposed to that as an option. And it's certainly not as young of an age as it was presented to me, right? <laughs> no, and not as casually. I think I did, mm-hmm. you know, I did hear about it at one point when I 
was, I want to say in high school because I needed to get glasses. And oh, did you we having get the glasses? We were having, yeah, we were having the glasses versus contacts debate. And the ophthalmologist had said you, that I couldn't wear contacts because I had an astigmatism and because my eyelashes would brush the contact lenses, I guess, in a, in a way that would scratch my, my cornea or my, my eye. And he had mentioned, he said, you know, a lot of Asians get double eyelid surgery. And he also brought up the fact that, you know, as you get older, sometimes your eyelids will get droopy and it becomes more of, you know, as you said, a medical issue because you can't see. And I remember because I didn't know that was the first time I had heard anything. My poor Mm -hmm. mother was sitting in the corner of the room, like jaw on the floor. And I think she was, you know, just so shocked and debating whether or not she should tell this doctor off to be like, you know, because to her, it was him saying, your daughter's not beautiful. There's something wrong with her eyes. Um, Oh, that's, that's really heartbreaking to hear. Actually, my sister, much like what you just said, she has a severe astigmatism and she did get double eyelid surgery and lower eyelid surgery as well, because her lashes were scratching her corneas. And uh, now you know, since then she was able to wear contacts, but before then she was unable to. Mm-hmm. So that's a, <laughs> that's directly related to the experience of my nuclear family. Yeah. But to, you know, to me and my mom who had no idea, it was just like, you know, I think to her, it was, how dare you tell my daughter to, you know, cut her eyelids or, <laughs> or to change it. It wasn't something that was to her casual, number one, or, you know, culturally acceptable, because it just wasn't on her radar or mine at the time. You know, in regards to what my sister went through, she definitely didn't go through that surgery or those surgeries because of the beauty aspect of it whatsoever like it it purely was brought up and happened because of a you know a medical reason obviously you know most people have never even heard of a lower eyelid surgery happening but her lower eyelashes were actually pointed kind of upward where they were touching her eyeball <laughs> so yeah that was actually the reason why double eyelid surgery was floated to me because we went to korea to have her upper eyelid surgery done because we just, you know, if we're going to have that kind of surgery, we didn't (laughs) necessarily trust a white Kansan doctor to do that, where the doctors in Korea have so much experience of doing a very natural and beautiful job that if she needed to, for this medical reason, we would rather just go over there and do it very professionally and cleanly, where they have a lot of experience working on Asian eyes. Um, And I think that's also one of the reasons why I'm very open-minded when it comes to people getting eyelid surgery, but I am also a lot more strict and careful about what I do myself because I feel like a lot of people look to me as sort of this, you know, poster child of a monolidded person. You know, like I, I feel a lot of weight of other monolitters looking to me to be a standard of monolitedness, <laughs> you know? <Right. laughs> and I'm happy to be that, but I also just want everybody to be living their best life in their own skin, you know? Yeah. And well, you deserve the freedom that everybody else has to, you know, make the choices that you want for your body and 
and your own health and self-esteem and everything. So yeah, I definitely sympathize that that pressure to kind of stick to a brand for lack of a better term or an image <laughs> that has been established, you know, not necessarily intentionally, but that, yeah, that must put a lot of pressure on you sometimes if you think about perhaps changing or doing something different. You know, it's funny. I actually feel like I am more confident in being monolithic now because of the fact of the position I've been put in, you know, because I've been given this incredible platform to share makeup tutorials and content to help put makeup on monolithic eyes. I feel like that's just made me so much more able to embrace my own monoliths as well. Absolutely. You know, which I think is a pretty cool thing. I think I think even now a lot of Asians are still pretty heavily weighing toward the double eyelid camp. So I think just existing as a monolitter monolitter? <laughs> I think just existing <laughs> as a monolitic person is helpful for other people to find that beauty within themselves too. I mean not not everybody certainly has the ability to you know, fly to Korea and get a double eyelid surgery at all. And especially people who haven't been exposed to the idea like yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can only imagine the look on my mother's face if I had suggested flying to Korea to get eyelid surgery when I was (laughs) like 15 years old. (laughs) Um, So switching gears a little bit, you're married to your husband, Ben. You two have done a mini series on your YouTube channel called Ask Jen and Ben. You guys are very, very cute. Um, (laughs) Where you both answer questions about parenting and your relationship, life. You guys have been going through some massive house renovations. Um, It looks beautiful. And in some of those episodes, you touch upon being an interracial couple. And I'm curious how do you two navigate conversations about race as a couple? Or have you ever felt like you needed to talk about race or racism in the course of your relationship? I feel like discussing issues about race and racism and cultural identity within our relationship and our family and our lives, it has become pretty much a daily topic. To give a little background, Ben and I started dating when we were 16 years old. Super young little babies had no idea about everybody's perceptions about interracial relationships or the implications of white male, Asian female, or you know what that even meant, or that we were even going to stay together for this long. (laughs) I mean, we were 16 and we're 36 now, so we've been together longer than we haven't, and it was all very innocent. It was just two young kids who started becoming best friends and fell in love. And wow, when I first started putting content on the internet, my eyes were really, really opened to the vast amount of racism and criticism and judgment about myself and the relationship that I was in due to our races. I just honestly had no idea until I started putting content on the internet that that even existed. Mm. I think that my experience with racism within our interracial relationship before then was largely we would get stared at constantly 
if we were walking around a mall or holding hands or just walking down a street, people would just stare. And then also, I also feel like, you know, Ben really started having to be careful in what he said about me or showed about me to coworkers or friends or acquaintances because as soon as they would find out I was Asian, the sexualized comments and the fetishization would immediately come out. And so I didn't even know this until recently. This was a recent conversation we had. But he told me he stopped showing people my picture because as soon as he would, people would start making comments, like inappropriate comments. And so it was much better if he just didn't bring it up and just would talk about his girlfriend. And then if I showed up at his workplace or something, then that would just be a surprise or whatever. But it didn't matter. You know, he he always wanted to protect me from that. And, and I find that to be, that's, it's a frustrating and difficult reality. But it's also something that we've certainly experienced throughout our entire relationship. And so it, it's really difficult. And then, and then from my perspective, obviously, I started putting content on the internet a long time ago, 2008, like you said. And as soon as I started, as soon as anyone ever found out that I was married to somebody who was not an Asian man, I started getting horrible comments, like really really egregious racist comments saying that I was just being a white man's sex slave, uh, that I didn't deserve to live, that I was just being a mail order bride and I hated myself and I hated my Asian background and I'm a, you know, a traitor to my race and wow. Wow. Uh, and, And I have to say those comments I have regularly received nonstop since I started. And it's something I've never really spoken about because, you know, you don't want to feed the trolls, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, it is, and it's something that I think people don't necessarily, I don't think they're aware of it quite so much, that nuance. Like our our episode that we had just launched this week, we had talked about dating as Korean adoptees and and had mentioned the fact that most of us, Um, I think just by a product of the environments that we grow up in, I mean, most of us have grown up completely surrounded by whiteness, but at least for us women adoptees, many of us, our partners are, are white. And I feel like there is a lot of conversation around the fetishization and the sexualization and, you know, kind of what you were talking about, the comments that, you know, Ben's coworkers would make, but that other side of, you know, the mail order bride comments, or for instance, like my husband is Jewish. So I've gotten, you know, the comments about the stereotypical Asian, Asian woman with the Jewish man type of comments. And those I feel like are ones that really are such a large, I don't want to say large component as if they're, you know, they're all that matters, but it is, it go, it's all the same thing. Um, but I feel like people don't necessarily talk about the relationship aspect of it quite as much. I had, I was not even aware that that was a stereotype. So I'm learning so much just from being a part of this conversation. But now that you say it, 
I can think of several examples of Jewish men uh, dating Asian women just from, you know, founders of startups and such, you know, powerful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, that's something that honestly, I, it wouldn't even cross my mind because I have never heard the voices of the Asian women with those men to hear what their experience has been, you know? And I think that that's also whether you're culturally raised in an Asian family or not, I still think that Asian women, period, because of how we look and because of how people treat us, there is that cultural pressure to not speak up about these things, not speak up about your experience and your perspective. I've said so many times about my frustration in feeling like our voices have been so invisible. I feel like growing up in the white community, I did. The problem is that a lot of the white community there was taught that they don't see race. And in doing so, they saw me as a white person. And that became really problematic because if I had a racist experience, which I did regularly, frequently, I would have a lot of my experiences be very dismissed. And I can only imagine that yourself as an adoptee, you know, married to a Jewish man as well, it's only very much of that same kind of experience, you know? I can't imagine that there was much of a platform for you to feel confident to share your perspective on that. Yeah. And I mean, in the adoptee community, we talk a lot about, you know, especially in the the 80s and and before the 80s, I think a lot of us now who are adults are working really hard to speak up and use our voices Mm -hmm. to make sure that the tiny adoptees who are, you know, two, three, four, five years old right now don't grow up in the same situations that we did. But, you know, what was promoted by adoption agencies was the idea of exactly what you said, colorblindness, that we don't see race, love is enough. And I think much like your experience, a lot of us grew up internalizing racism because we were seen as white. And it was, you know, it wasn't if we were called a slur or, you know, if anything happened regarding our race, it was at best handled as a kind of run of the mill bullying incident. Like we're just not mean to people, but people would tiptoe around the racial connotation or it wasn't handled at all. Or maybe we didn't even know. I feel like so many of us were probably called things and had microaggressions and way more experiences than we were even aware of where we were targeted for our race or for being Asian. But we didn't even have the wherewithal to know that it was going on or that it was wrong because it was just nobody talked about it. That's really heartbreaking for me to hear. I feel like for myself, I feel really blessed that my mom especially was a big advocate in terms of calling out when there were racist things happening. I remember there were several times where she would march up to the school, me in hand, and talk to a teacher or a counselor or somebody, demand to be heard, and say that was racist. I remember those words coming out of her her mouth multiple times. And I think that that helped me to understand that it was a reality and that it was happening, even if it 
wasn't explicit, like somebody saying a specific racial slur. I think it helped me to understand that the context of a situation can be racist as well. Um, mm-hmm. But but even even with that, like what you just said, I, I feel like there were so many things that I look back on and I'm processing with a 2021 lens and realizing how many instances from my past were very race-related. For instance, I don't know if you saw... Um, Eugene from the Try Guys, he came out with a documentary on YouTube that you absolutely should watch. Yes, I've seen it. It's fantastic. Yeah, it was so eye-opening. And there were so many things in there that I was learning for the first time. And it really, that was the first time I really reflected on my experiences of being sexualized for being Asian. I guess Mm -hmm. I just always thought about the fetishization as part of the well, all women get catcalled and grabbed and called things. But then I, when I watched that, I was like, you know, that's not right. I did have a different experience than my white girlfriends growing up. I did have a different experience of men saying comments to me about my Asianness or being interested in my Asianness in a way that I always felt very off-putting and and also in a way I felt like I hid behind being in a relationship that I would just try to brush it off but then all of those experiences are coming back where I'm like dang I dodged so many bullets from these men who aggressively pursued me because they were fetishizing my Asianness and that's <laughs> really pretty terrifying to look back on mm-hmm. how do you feel like i mean not that it's a it's a two-way interview right <laughs> yeah no totally It's called Soul Conversations for a reason. (laughs) I I feel like, um, obviously, I feel super blessed that my relationship with Ben, because we started dating at such a young age and basically just grew up together, I feel like he assimilated a lot of my Korean culture into his culture as time went on, especially, you know, like he uses a lot of Korean words when talking to our kids. He cooks majority Korean food at home because that's what we all <laughs> like eating. You know, he is always open to these conversations and always listening and always has a very unique perspective because for so many of these racist incidences that have happened to me in the past, he has seen it happen right next to me in front of his own two eyes. So he's extremely aware of what exists. He is not somebody who ever will deny my experiences or try to apologize for the other side or try to say, oh, that was just a joke. They were joking or, you know, oh, they didn't mean that. Oh, I hate, I hate it when I would try to share an experience of racism with one of my friends and they would immediately jump to defend whoever was saying the racist thing first. Mm -hmm. Um, The playing devil's advocate, it drives me nuts. It's like, I took this um, mental health course with HBO like last year. And one of the most important things that you do when you're listening to somebody's story or, or like a very vulnerable experience is the number one step is to validate their experience. You don't have to give your 
two cents on how to fix it or your advice. You don't have to explain something or say what happened to you that was similar in your past. You just need to validate them and just be present and listen and really appreciate that that person is sharing that experience with you. And let me tell you, the first way to not do that is to try to say that some perpetrator was just joking when they said something racist. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm so glad to even have learned so much in the last year since Black Lives Matter, just to have the language to even process everything happening now, because I feel like I did so much crying after Black Lives Matter started just trying to understand and unpack all of these uh, instances of really horrible bullying I had in my past and, and trying to process that in a way that would help my own mental health, but to also help me have the words to be able to speak on it and speak up for other Asians' experiences that probably went through very similar things to me. Mm-hmm. I definitely was right there with you in terms of the crying and the processing. And it was just the knowledge and finally, like, I felt like I had the toolkit to finally start unpacking. Right. Um, Versus always being dismissed, always, always in the past, like, or even dismissing it to ourselves and acting like, oh, that wasn't a big deal, because you just get so numb to it happening all the time. Mm hmm. So my husband, also, I think, like Ben has has been very, he's always very open to listening. And We have conversations about race, and especially now that we're expecting our daughter soon. But I know that he also often gets very frustrated that he doesn't have the answers and that he can't necessarily be, aside from, you know, being a shoulder to cry on and being an ally and being in solidarity, that he he can't immediately fix it. And I am interested to see how that's going to play out for him as a father too, when I'm sure at some point, as much as I hope to God it doesn't, but you know, if if something is said to to our our child or whatnot, or if she is is hurt, but does Ben share that same frustration sometimes? I think inevitably, right? As the person who loves me, and as the person who adores his children, he not only has to go through all of those thoughts privately, but he has to deal with horrible comments that he receives online. You know, he got comments the day Aria was born about how he should regret bringing that child into the world. You know, it's horrible. So, (laughs) I mean, I will say I get the majority of the heat always, you know, being the (laughs) female person of color. I'm sure it's a lot more intimidating to send something racist to him, but he he's gotten it too. And in some of the most vulnerable times of our life, right? I think that the thing to remember though, is that we don't need to have all of the answers. We just need to listen to each other's stories because being able to listen and being able to open up in a very vulnerable capacity, that's what helps us to heal. And that's what gives us strength. And that's what gives us the bravery to help others to be vulnerable and heal and have strength. 
Right. And so the more that we talk about it, even when it's really difficult, the more we lean into that and the more practice we get, the more vocabulary we get to describe how we feel, which let me tell you, as a parent, (laughs) you will... (laughs) You will be going through all of the hoops trying to teach your child to just form into words how they feel so that they can process their emotions. But you know what? We need to learn that as adults. We need to learn that first. And then the more we practice that, the more we'll be able to prepare our children to face whatever they're facing. That's really the only way to teach them (laughs) because the reality is you can't protect your child from racism. You can't protect them from being fetishized because as a half Asian woman, she will be. Right. My children were fetishized since years before they were born. Yeah. People talk about how like half Asian babies are the cutest. I remember being in middle school and being told that I should marry a black man because half black, half Asian babies were like the most beautiful in the world. And then if you say something on it, people say, oh, well, that's supposed to be a compliment. Right. Really just objectifying. Right. And making assumptions based on how you look. You know, I've gotten comments about, oh, you're going to make beautiful babies when we were 16 years old. Like, why is that appropriate? Like, you wouldn't say that to two white 16-year-old kids dating each other. You wouldn't say, oh, you're going to make really beautiful babies. Like, you should not be talking to them about making babies. But people would say it so casually, and it always made me uncomfortable. But again, I didn't have the words or really the processing to understand why that made me uncomfortable. But Ben and I are very much making it a priority that every time I feel uncomfortable about anything regarding race, we talk about it immediately. We pick it apart. We figure out what it is that's making us uncomfortable and we talk about what's not okay about it, you know, because if we don't know, it's bound to happen again. Absolutely. That's the only way to progress. That's the only way to change. That's the only way to teach our children to not bring that into the next generation's rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the next generation, you have two wonderful children, Aria and Ezra. They're very, very present, I would say, on your social media accounts. Mm -hmm. Um, How are you raising your children to be proud of both their Korean and American heritages? You know, from the very beginning, I've been very intentional about raising them with a lot of Korean traditions. Like their 100 days celebration is something that's very, very Korean. Historically in Korea, a lot of babies didn't make it to live 100 days old. So when they would hit that 100 days, it was an occasion to be celebrated. And we've just brought that into today's society as well, which I really love. And we also did uh, their first birthday as like a really huge celebration. Um, In Korea, it's almost like a little wedding. Like it's a really big deal to have a very big first birthday celebration. And I'm so glad we got to do that with Arya and Ezra. But beyond that, I've also been really intentional about putting them in places that have a Korean community. So like all of the preschools, all of the daycares that I've sent them to, I've intentionally sought out Korean daycares so that they do have that basis of seeing other Korean kids and half Korean kids 
and then learning the language, eating the food, and being around that culturally. Mm-hmm. I know you said Ben does a lot of Korean cooking. Is he learning Korean along with them? You know, he actually just signed up for a course. He took he took elementary Korean in college. I <laughs> took it as well, and it was a, an easy A for me. <laughs> I'm not like the most fluent person in the world, but um, definitely did okay in the intro to Korean class that we took. Um, he did quite well as well. I think even just that one class, he's retained so much from it. Um, but he signed up for a course just recently because our daughter got into a dual language Korean English program for her elementary school. It's like a 50-50 immersion teaching. So half of their classes will be just taught in Korean so that oh, cool. you know as they go through school, they can just become more and more fluent. And as a supplement to that, they offered an adult's course to learn Korean as well. So Ben's taking that and he's really, really excited about it. Oh, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. You're such an inspiration to women everywhere, but especially to those of us within the Asian and Asian adoptee communities. What are you most proud of in regards to being a Korean American woman and an Asian American woman? You know, I feel like before I started having my videos on the internet, before I shared any of that, I never really felt like I had a community. I never really felt embraced by my Korean side because a lot of my Korean family members or other people around me, they would just say I'm like so whitewashed. And then my white community would just think that I'm so Korean. (laughs) And I, I never really felt like I belonged. So when I started to share more of my experiences online, I was just shocked at how many people felt like they related to me. And not me being super Korean or not me being super American, just me being my own identity of somewhere in the middle was enough for people to say, wow, like I finally feel seen. And that was so impactful to me. And I think really shaped a lot of the reason why I wanted to continue to do this kind of content is because I really want people to feel seen, who feel somewhat like me, like they don't necessarily understand fully where they belong, or they feel like they have to go more this or that direction. But to be the one who is blessed to be in the position to help other people feel like they can feel more comfortable in their own identity, I think that's so priceless. I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. I love it so much. And it really keeps me going on days where I feel like I do have a lot of hate or I feel like it gets really tough. I get a lot of judgment being in the position that I'm in no matter what I'm doing, if you can imagine. Um, But I'm just so, so incredibly thankful that it's so much deeper than just a surface level of teaching somebody how to put on lipstick. You know, It, it seems like so shallow on the surface, but to know how deeply it runs with people feeling like they have a sense of their identity, I think is just such a beautiful experience. And to be able to call that a job is just, I don't even have words for that. Definitely. For me and for others, everything that you've done and and who you are as a person, 
as you said, it's so much more than just putting on lipstick. It's, you know, it is, it's that community piece. It's that feeling like there's just this unspoken bond, like a sisterhood in a way. And it's really beautiful. That's such a great way of calling it. Yeah. Sisterhood. I, <laughs> I wished I had that sisterhood when I was, you know, trying to find myself. I I will say it might be surprising for you to hear, but I am actually frequently and regularly messaged by Korean adoptees who have a very similar story to you where they say they found my channel and that was sort of the first time that they really felt like they related, you know, to somebody who could share with them a reflection back on their own identity and experience. I I'm so grateful for hearing the stories of members of the Korean adopted community. And I love hearing about those experiences. I do deeply relate to a lot of the experiences, even if my home culture was obviously a little bit different. You know, all of my friends growing up were white. All of the majority of people that I have been in relationships with or the teachers around me or my friendships, it was very not diverse. And so I think a lot of those feelings of being a little bit of a, an island where you looking out, you feel like you're the same as everyone else, but everybody looking in sort of naturally others you. I just feel that so deeply. And I think about that often. And so I just want to say that I do think about the adoptee community regularly, and I just really appreciate that you guys are really coming into your own and your own identity, and in many ways, really attempting to embrace the cultural roots that exist there. I think that's awesome. I've had people ask me if they have permission to celebrate certain holidays that are Korean or to, you know, do certain traditions. And all I have to say is, you know, absolutely, please, please teach that to your children. Please cook the food. Please find that community and find that identity within yourself. I think that that's a beautiful thing. And it's a gift that you can give to your children, learning it alongside them. I think that's amazing. Thank you. And it's been great too. I feel like because there is sometimes I think perhaps a little bit of a, I wouldn't say like a full divide, but maybe a gap between the adoptee community and the larger Asian American community in terms of that quantifying question of like, how Asian are you? Quote unquote. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a huge reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast because not only because I just adore you as, as a human, but, <laughs> but because your story is so parallel to a lot of our experiences. And I think it really goes to show that that space between the adoptee community and the Asian American community isn't always as wide as we think it is. There are commonalities and there are so many shared experiences that can really bond us and we can, you know, celebrate and cheer for each other and share culture and share stories, but that it doesn't need to be this contentious or sort of gate-kept relationship. The way I see it is we don't need to focus our energies on pushing each other out. I think that there's so much benefit to be gained from bringing everybody into the fold, you know, because the more we have these intimate conversations, the more it will help us to become 
better people, better partners, better parents, better humans, if we just talk about it, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and as far as being in categories of more or less Asian or whatever it is, even within Korean Americans or Asian Americans that were born in the U.S. versus born in Korea and immigrated, there is a huge difference. So as far as you feel far away from someone who might, you know, be born into a family with two Asian parents, you know, I also feel quite a bit of distance from my culture versus somebody who came over when they were three or four years old. And a lot of cultural experiences and languages were already established at that time. The fact of the matter is, even from family to family, we all experience slightly different cultures. And my mixed family will be different than your mixed family versus somebody else's mixed family. But I think that that's all really beautiful and wonderful. And we all have things that we can learn from each other just from talking to each other and and sharing those stories and sharing those shared experiences. So I think the more we talk, the more we learn. And the more we learn, the more empathetic we can be to each other. Definitely. Well, Jen, thank you so very much for being here. It was so wonderful having the opportunity to talk with you about your journey, both in beauty, but I feel like more importantly in life, this went so far beyond just, I feel like you, it goes so far beyond makeup. (laughs) Um, And I'm just so glad that you were willing to connect and that we can sit down and we can have these conversations. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. and, And I'm just so honored to be able to have that talk and have other Korean adoptees be able to listen in too and and have this conversation with us. Sure. You can follow Jen on Instagram and on YouTube at From Head to Toe. There you can watch all of her beauty tutorials and stay up to date on what's happening with her kids, her house renovations, her newest plant obsession, (laughs) and everything in between. And Jen, we just can't wait to see where you go and what you do next. Thank you so much. I am really excited to be putting a lot of more beauty content online and, you know, just finding my footing as a mother of two and a plant mom too. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, all the plant tips. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. As always, follow us on Instagram at Soul Conversations. Check out our website, www.soulconversationspodcast.com. And feel free to send us an email at soulconversationspodcast at gmail.com. Have a wonderful week, and we will catch you all on our next episode. Bye, everyone. Mm